Good morning. Our first verse is from Judges 2, 6 through 10. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his, of his inheritance, at timnath Hears, in the hillside country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After the whole generation had gathered to their fathers, another, another generation grew up, who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Our second reading is from Galatians 6, 1. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, for you also may be tempted. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Can you imagine actually meeting Jesus Christ? Wow, that's, that's a great thought. And Ted, you need to put that on our list. I don't know if the congregation knows that song, but if we don't, we need to learn it and, and sing it a lot. I love that song. Thank you very much. Where is the birthday card? There you go. Thank you for holding it up. Keep it moving. You won't bother me a bit. Just everybody that knows Sarah, even if you don't know Sarah, sign that front, back, inside, wherever you can. But uh, we're going to take it up to her this afternoon and celebrate her birthday. So thank you very much for signing that. There was a fellow named George who joined the local Baptist church. And uh, unfortunately, this was a real church, and there was a lady named Mildred there who was a gossip. And everybody knew it, but like most Baptist churches, they ignored Mildred and her dysfunctional behavior. And so she just yap, 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 trashing people right and left. And it's just kind of the way she was. You know, everybody put up with it. Well, one day she saw George's pickup truck parked outside the bar. And it's a small town. There's only one bar. Next day she saw George's pickup truck outside the bar. So pretty soon, you know what she's yapping about. George's got a drinking problem. And so he's at church one day and she starts yapping at him about, I saw your truck outside the bar. And she's making all these accusations accusations towards George, and he just kind of looks at her. And she finally gets done expecting some response. There's no response. He just sort of stares at her and walks away. Doesn't say a word. Well, that night, George got in his old pickup truck, and he drove over to Mildred's house quietly, and he parked his truck right out front and got out and walked home (laughs) and left it there all night. You gotta love a guy like George, don't you? I mean, that's just, that's just good. Do you know what entropy is? E-N-T-R-O-P-Y. The word's up there, entropy. Let me ask you a question. I'd like you to raise your hand and this would be like a confession. How many of you somewhere, perhaps it's your desk if you have a desk and it's just an absolute disaster, or maybe it's your purse, or maybe it's the workbench in the garage or the basement, or maybe it's a closet, or maybe it's the back seat of your car or the trunk, but somewhere you have 
this area that's just a disaster, and you say, I'm gonna, I need to clean that up. Yeah? I think most of us do. A couple of us don't. Uh, you need to be up here teaching us how not to have these problems. Entropy is when the paint peels off the wall. Entropy is when rust comes on steel. Entropy is when your hair starts falling out or your teeth fall out or your skin falls off or, you know, these things, that's entropy. In fact, I looked up this word. It's not a word we talk much about in church, but uh, here's what the dictionary says. Entropy is the degree of disorder or uncertainty in a system. And every system has entropy. There's no such thing on the face of this earth of a system or place where there's not entropy. Or, another definition, a process of degradation or running down or a trend to disorder. Ah, ain't it awful? Entropy. (laughs) I think you've got a little entropy going on in your life. Or in your body, entropy. Now, I've got several quotes for you, and I hope you'll find your worship folder and take out this sheet and uh, kind of look at it as, as we are together this morning, because uh, there's a quote in there by John Ortberg. He's a pastor up in Menlo Park, a Presbyterian, but for today we're going to even quote a Presbyterian here. Um, Ortberg says this, Spiritual entropy means that our spiritual lives tend toward or move toward disorder if we don't put energy into keeping them vibrant and alive. In his new book, The Resilient Life, Gordon MacDonald expresses the same thing in another way. Gordon MacDonald says, um, One of the saddest experiences is to awaken at old age and discover that one has only been using a small part of self. A poet many years ago said the same thing like this. John Greenleaf Whittier said, For all the sad words of tongue and pen, the saddest are these... What might have been? What might have been? And this morning, I really see this as, uh, I'm not the kind of guy that likes to give out warnings, but this message is really a warning or a wake-up call to try and arrest entropy in our spiritual lives and move us towards energetic health of having the kind of life God wants us to have. And uh, actually, we're looking at the book of Judges. For those of you, you visiting, we're going through uh, Joshua Judges and First and Second Samuel, we're calling it Stepping Out in Faith. And last week we talked about war and all the wars in, in uh, the book of Joshua. Now we're t- into the book of Judges for the next two weeks, and we're going to actually follow this line. I can't get through all this today, so we'll be back here next week from the book of uh, Judges. Now, the book of Judges comes after Joshua has lived. They've moved into the promised land. They're living there now. Some In some ways, there were wars, and they got in there by war, but also some of it was just assimilation. They just kind of moved in there and settled down, and they've been living there a while. And as you think of the nation of Israel, don't think of a nation like the United States of America or some really organized nation. They weren't organized. They were held together by a common belief in Yahweh. There were 12 tribes. They had the law, the books of Moses, and that brought them together. So there was a religious relationship, and of course they were physically related, but they weren't centrally governed. There was no capital. There was no uh, real government in place. And the book of Judges is a book we're going to talk about today and next week. Who do you think the key players are in the book of Judges? Judges. Thank you. We could have been here a long time. 
And what did the judges do? And let me put this up on your screen very quickly. The judges, when you think about a judge in a black robe, that is not the way to think about these characters, okay? They did not go around in black robes. They didn't hold court somewhere. People didn't come to them for decisions. The judges primarily did three things. Uh, they were political leaders. They were raised up to lead the country, and they did so. Secondly, they were military deliverers. That is, they rallied an army together, and they went out and fought battles. And then thirdly, they were actually, and this is the most important, they were God's agent of power or the agent of God's power. And this is basically what they did. And in the book of Judges, I, I just am groaning inside because there's so much we'd, I'd like to cover that we're not going to cover today. But as you read through the reading plan, you'll read some of these amazing stories in the book of Judges. But there's a cycle there, and we're going to talk about cycles. And the cycle is, in fact, let's put this graphic on the board. The cycle is that God would raise up these judges, and there would be a season of greatness in the land, and... Uh, they would last about 40 years or a generation. Then they'd kind of decay, and then they'd raise up another judge. Let me just walk through this. Uh, at the top is the word peace. And it was true in the book of Judges, and it's also often true in church life. It's often true in the lives of denominations. It's often true in our personal lives. We have a time of peace. Things go well. And so do we pray more or less when our lives are going great? Less, unfortunately. You know, we become, the next word is complacent. I don't know if you can see it in that light green, but we become complacent. Yeah, life's good. It's always going to be good. We're just kind of drifting along. Went to church today. It's good. That's it. Now, no sooner did Israel become complacent than she looked around at her Canaanite neighbors and don't get the impression from judges that they were all gone because they were right next door. They were right there. They're living with the Canaanites. Who did the Israelites try to be like? Who did they begin to imitate? The Canaanites. And so they came into sin. Now, I'm here to say, and you can say, you can quote me on this, sin is great. Turn to your neighbors and say, sin is great. Tell them it's pleasurable. The Bible says that sin has a season of pleasure. Sin is very much like if you get a credit card and somebody says you've got $10,000 on this credit card, that's your limit, and you go out, you can have a great time for a while, right? Our politicians do this all the time with our money. They're doing it right now. And if you had a credit card with $10,000 on it, you could go out to some great restaurants. You might take a cruise. You could buy some new clothes. You say, wow, life is great. And it would be. What happens next? The bill comes. Pain. And that's at the bottom of this. Whether you can see it or not, down there is pain. And sin is pleasurable for a season. But the Bible also says, be sure your sins will what? Find you out. You reap what you sow. And if you sow sinfully, you're going to reap pain. And that's what happened in Israel. They went off to the other gods. In fact, we're going to put a graphic up to say that in just a minute. Okay, after the, uh, when you get in a lot of pain, what do you do? Huh? Help, God! Help! And that's what they did in the book of Judges. They began to pray. And uh, this is where, I don't want you to miss this in the book of Judges, because there are some weird stories here, but uh, what does God do when we pray? Slap us down? Kill us? He's gracious. And so God would graciously respond to these people. He would raise up a judge to deliver Israel. And uh, you can see in the yellow there on the upper left, the deliverer or the judge. And this is the cycle of Judges. And I want you to remember this as you read Judges. How good is God to keep putting up with this disobedient group of people? 
How gracious is God? Time after time, there are 12, we call them major and minor, there's no good reason for that, but there are about 12 judges in the book of Judges. And some of them get a lot of press, some of them get almost no press, but God raises these guys up, or women, and they judge Israel, and there's victory, and then there's this cycle again. So as we go through this today, I'd like you to think about your own life and spiritual entropy. And I want to, I hope this is not complicating things too much, but you see at the top of this page or in the middle, there's a circle. Uh, we're going to fill that out, and then you're going to think in terms of, in my life, is, am I going towards spiritual entropy or what I call the vicious circle? I'm into sin, I'm doing things that are going to only harm me in the end. Or am I in a victorious cycle of life? That is, I'm doing things that are building me up and making me better. And you have to decide. Now, here's a verse, uh, Judges chapter, what's the next verse? 3 verse 7. Let's read this together because this kind of captures what happens over and over and over in the book of Judges. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and serves the Baals and Asherahs. That's, uh, that's what happened here in, in the cycle. Now, this morning, we're not going to have a chance to look at all these characters, but I want to walk through the book of Judges. I want to encourage you to identify your life a little and look at this as kind of a warning. Am I doing things or not doing things, and do I need to make some change so that I'm in a victorious, life-giving cycle rather than a destructive cycle in my life? Now, let's, uh, we're going to look at the first one, um, which I call the vicious cycle. And if on top of this number one, the circle up there, if you'll just put the word faith on top of that circle, just the word faith, okay? Because we're going to talk about faith for a minute. And in the vicious cycle, over there on the left column, put in the word um, perverting. What did I put in there? There we go. Yeah, preventing or... I couldn't read my writing. Uh, Preventing or failing to pass on the faith. Now, let me pause and talk about this for a minute because there's a very tragic word in the book of uh, Judges. If you want to follow along, I'm on page 218 in your pew Bible, Judges chapter 2, verse uh, verse 10. Listen to this scripture, Judges 2.10. Moreover, that whole generation was gathered to their ancestors, and another generation grew up after them, who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Now, not a trick question. What had God done for Israel? What's the biggest thing to this point he had ever done for Israel? The Exodus, yeah. Moses getting out of slavery. God had done that for them. What were the parents supposed to do? The people that experienced that event, the Passover, the Exodus, what were they supposed to do at Passover? They were to hand down the story to the next generation. And in fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses says there's only one God and you worship him and you're to teach this to your children and your children's children. Hand it down. Pass on the faith. And this generation failed to pass on their faith. And I think they failed probably because they had grown complacent in their own life and there was no passion for God. And secondly, they didn't bother then to teach it to their children. Now, if you travel to Europe, many of us today still read great Christian writers and thinkers and scholars who lived and preached in Europe years ago. It was a Christian place. Is it today? Not at all. Not at all. You go to great cathedrals and you marvel at the structures and and you read maybe some of the great literature, but you go there today and they're empty. They're museums. 
and it's basically a secular place. What happened? Well, they failed to pass on the faith. Now, if we're going to be a part of the victorious cycles, what do we do? What's our obligation? It's to pass on the faith. And so on the other side, if you're following along and want to fill that out, just put that down that we are to pass on the faith. Now, let me read to you from 2 Timothy chapter 1, uh, just to encourage us in this way. Of course, Paul is writing to Timothy. Timothy's a young preacher. Paul has sort of raised him up. And if you, if you read this uh, in a shallow way or don't know much about the story, you think, well, that's great. Uh, Paul won Timothy to the Lord. Timothy became a great servant and pastored churches and was a great uh, Christian leader in his day. Now, he was a great Christian leader, but not because of Paul. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, listen. Now, remember, we're thinking about passing on the faith. Uh, in 2 Timothy past, uh, 1.5, Paul says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, Timothy's sincere faith. Where did he get it? A faith that lived first in your grandmother Lois and then in your mother Eunice. And now I'm sure it lives in you. So this is a third generation person of faith. Timothy had received faith from his mother, who received faith from her grandmother, and so it goes. The faith had been passed on. Now, I particularly want to speak to those of us who have children, parents, or grandchildren. Or maybe you're really close and you're an aunt or uncle. And the question is, first of all, am I passionate about my faith? Do I think there's something of value here that I want to pass on? And if I'm not passionate about Jesus, and this is just something I kind of do for an hour on Sunday morning, then I'm probably not going to pass it on. And the question is, do I really want my three sons to be totally committed to Jesus Christ? Is that the most important thing in my life? Or is it more important that they go to AYSO soccer on Sunday mornings? And many of us as parents are more concerned about the physical or the intellectual development of our children than we are about the spiritual development of our children. Now, let me also say this. This is not the place that passes on faith. The first place is your home, not the church. And children, most of all, are going to learn faith from their parents. Now, we're a huge part of that as a church. But I want to encourage you, moms, dads, if you have children in your home, that uh, you ought to be regularly reading the Bible to your children in your home. And I hope that you can gather for an evening meal, turn the TV off, sit down together, enjoy one another's company. You say, well, we only fight. That's because you never sit down together, maybe. I don't know. But spend time together as a family, actually eat a meal together, and then afterwards, you know what you need to do? I did this years ago. We bought the simplest Bible I could find, the Children's Living Bible, had pictures in it, and we picked out stories. And over the years, we've read through Genesis, parts of Exodus, skipped a lot of Judges, uh, skipped most of uh, Joshua, read through First and Second Samuel. We're going to read that recently. That's a fantastic book to read to children. We read great chunks of the Old Testament, all of the Gospels, all the book of Acts, our kids have read through those many times. Why? Because we sat down and read through them. And Roger would get upset because he couldn't go play till he told me what we talked about. You know, you need to educate your children. Now, you also need to have them in church, but again, it's not our first job. Um, I am blessed, and I understand that fact. I feel very unworthy of the blessing. But right here is something that I have in my pocket. It's a phylacrity. You have to go look that up. I don't have time to explain it. But uh, what's the point? Well, about once a month, my dad, who's 79 years old and does not use a computer, he writes these things out. They're very difficult to read. 
But he gets a verse of Scripture, and he writes it down and laminates this card, and he mails it to me. He mails it to my brother Lars. He mails it to my brother Randy. He mails it to all his grandchildren. And he puts a little note on there. Now, my, grand, my sons think their grandpa is like, you know, some severe Old Testament prophet. I mean, he's just of, a, of another age. That's okay. They get them and they read them. Why does he do that? Because he wants the faith he has in Jesus Christ to be passed on to his sons and his grandsons and granddaughters. He's passionate about it. And entropy comes in when we really no longer are passionate about these things. And that's what happened in the book of Judges. And so this morning you can review for yourself uh, how you're doing in this area. Uh, I've got to move on, but as you can see, this is a huge issue. Entropy sets in and the vicious cycle when we don't pass on the faith. When we do pass it on, we're in a, vic- a very victorious cycle. Now let's go to number two. Uh, write the word power in that circle. Up in top, uh, there you go, the word power. And then on the vicious cycle, write down the word my, M-Y. This is not Dr. My, that's a different spelling. That would be a good thing to write down. <laughs> write down the word my, M-Y here, my power. And uh, then on the opposite of that, whose power are we going to write down? You can guess this one. God's power, sure. God's power. Let's t- t- go back to the book of Judges. And again, I was reading through this book and about several of these judges this week, and I, I, I wish we could have a little more fun with some of these guys, but we'll just pick on Gideon. Judges chapter 6. Gideon is, uh, I'm going to start reading in verse uh, 12. I'm on page 223 if you want to pick out a pew Bible. This is the story of Gideon. He's one of the judges. He takes up several chapters here. We're going to ignore some of the material, but... The, uh, in verse 7, Judges 6, 7, it says, The Israelites cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites. So the Midianites are the enemy. The folks are hurting. They cry out to God. God comes to Gideon in verse 12. The angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said to him, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Gideon answered, I wish I was an actor because some actor could do a great job with this. A, com- a comedian. But, sir, if the Lord is with us, you need to imagine a whiny, sickening kind of voice here. But, sir, if the Lord is with us, he says, uh, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the wonderful deeds our ancestors recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring you up out of Egypt and give us into the hand of Midian? Then the Lord turned to Gideon and said, Go in this might of yours and deliver Israel from the hand of the Midianites. I hereby commission you. Wow. God calls him a mighty warrior, commissions him to go to battle. And Gideon says, but sir, how can I deliver Israel? My clan is the weakest of all the clans in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. The Lord said to him, but I will be with you and you shall strike down the Midianites, every last one of them. Wow. Just to recast, God shows up and gives Gideon a job to do. And what does he say? He wrings his hands and crosses his legs and whines. And he says, oh, I'm a part of, you know, Manasseh is one of the tribes. And he says, I'm a part of Manasseh. We're so weak. And I'm even weaker than that. I'm the weakest of the weak. That's what he says. And he really says, I'm not going to do it. 
And this goes on and on with Gideon. We don't have time to, to go through it all, but um, God's grace in all this is rather astonishing. Now, entropy is in our lives. When we begin to say questions like this, you can be sure we're in the vicious cycle. Here are the questions. Do I have enough strength and power to accomplish what God's telling me to do? Do, uh, for a church, do we have enough money in our budget to do this? Can we manage this? Can we do that? When we start asking questions, what's wrong with those kind of questions? Well, they're all about ourselves, first of all. We're worried about ourselves. They have nothing to do with God's will. The right question is, what does God want you to do, Gideon? Well, he wants me to go defeat the Midianites. Why don't you do it? Quit your slobbering and whining around and go do it. See what happens. What's the worst that could happen? You get your head cut off. You go to heaven. I mean, isn't that true? Isn't it better to obey God and lose your life than to disobey God and go on with your slimy little life? And so Gideon goes on and on with these excuses here, and uh, he won't do what God wants him to do. Finally, he says that... uh, There's this little story of the fleece. Gideon lays this fleece out there, and he said, God, I'm going to know for sure that I'm supposed to do this if you'll make the fleece wet overnight. So Gideon gets up the next morning and wrings water out of it. It's soaking wet. But that's not good enough for Gideon. So the next night he said, well, God, let's try it the other way. Make the ground wet and the fleece dry, and then I'll know it's really you, and I'll do what you tell me to do. And God graciously does. If it had been me or you, we'd have slapped Gideon down by now. But God does it again. There's a comedian. His name is uh, Ken Davis. And he tells the story that kind of picks up on this whole point. He said I was, he was driving around, and he's going down the street. He knew there was a little bakery on the right side of the street. And so he prayed this prayer. He said, God, if there's a parking place in front of the bakery, I'll know you want me to stop and get a donut. <laughs> nice, huh? Ken continues the story. Sure enough, the fifth time around the block, there was a parking space right in front of the donut shop. That's how we usually do it. Yep. We set ourselves up like that, and that's what Gideon did. He's not an example of great faith. He's an example of great grace by God to get the job done. On July 30th, 1967, a beautiful young woman here in Southern California dove into the water. She came up totally paralyzed from the neck down. You know her, Joni Erickson. That's a long time ago, 1967. And in those months and first years after her paralysis, a quadriplegic, she suffered from depression, from bed sores, from uh, wondering what God had done to her, from all sorts of discouragements. It was a rough time. But she read her Bible, and friends prayed for her and cared for her and visited her. And now you and I know the name Joni Erickson Tata because she's married. She's an amazing painter. She paints by using her mouth, and you may have seen some of her gorgeous paintings. She's preached to more people than most preachers ever will. I don't know if it's millions. It's at least tens of thousands. She's traveled the world. Many people have been encouraged by her witness to Christ. Now, she did that because she's so capable, right? She has so much going for her, right? No, she didn't do it by her strength. It was God's strength. And that's what the Scripture says. We're we're to say, not by my power, but by the Lord's power. 
And Paul even said in his own struggles, I've realized that it's in my weakness that God's strength is revealed in the book of Corinthians. And so this morning, as you think about entropy in your life, spiritual entropy, are you relying on your power or God's power? And I have to confess, even coming into today, I had to be reminded about it because I'm all stressed out. Are we all together today? We're going to get it all done. Have I done all my stuff right? You know, is it all lined out? Did Ted get the agenda right? You know, are... I need to say, see, slow down here. What are you trying to preach about? If something good's going to happen, it's going to be by God's power, not by our power. And so this morning, I want to encourage you, encourage you to uh, just ask yourself, whose power? Whose power? Now, I have two more warnings today, or two more things to fill out there, but uh, we'll be here all day if we, if we go through all these. I wanted to talk about Deborah. She was, there's a woman judge. She's just a great example of God's power in jail, who is one of the most brutal stories in the Bible, uh, and hilarious story, actually, in, in some dark humor. Uh, you can read that in Judges 4 and 5, but we're not going to be able to talk about that. But I know some of you are going to go away really uptight if the blanks aren't filled in. In fact, I might do it myself. So let's fill them in, and then we're going to wrap this up, okay? And we're going to come back to the same theme next week. But uh, the vicious cycle, number three, and up in that circle, put in the word ministry up there. You see it down on the lower right-hand corner, the word ministry. Just write in the word ministry there, and we're thinking about ministry now. And the question is, who who ministers in the ministry? And then on number three in the vicious cycle, is it an elite few who serve, write in the word elite, E-L-I-T-E, or, in contrast, if we're in a healthy cycle, is it everyone who serves? And here's a, sl- a slide, and again, we don't have time to flesh this out, but whenever we begin to think that, you know, in order to be a good servant of the Lord, I've got to go to Fuller Seminary, I've got to have a doctorate before my name, or I've got to be like pastor this or pastor that, when we begin to think they're the people who do the ministry, we're in big trouble, folks, big trouble. But when we realize the ministry is for everyone, as 1 Corinthians 12 says, we're going to do it like God wants it done. Now, let's put this list of some of these folks up here. Um, Ehud. Again, we don't have time to talk much about him, but he's physically challenged. We're not sure what's going on there. No offense, left-handed people. He was a Benjamite. He was left-handed. That was one thing. There may have been some other problems. In a, in a very peculiar story, Ehud was a judge. Deborah was a woman in a male-dominated society. But the one guy who was supposed to lead battle said, I'm not going to do it unless Deborah comes along. And so Deborah was the judge that was raised up, a woman in this situation, a great judge. Then we had Gideon. We've talked about him, you know, the little whiner. I'm, I'm the least of the least. Poor me. And then finally, Jephthah, who's the son of a prostitute, got ran out of, run away from home by his siblings. And then when they're in trouble, they invite him back to save them, and he does. So just a little sampling of, of some of these characters in the book of Judges. Um, we're in a victorious cycle when everyone gathers together to serve. Now, we had over 20 people here last night setting up downstairs. It was great. And it's going to be even greater today as you show up. We bless the kids who show up. We just have a great time in the Lord's house at the Harvest Festival. It's going to be a lot of fun. And everyone's going to be engaged. There's something for everyone. Now, the last one, you can figure some of these out yourselves. But write down the word in number four, values. The word... Uh, values there, and I didn't make a slide for this, so I'm sorry about that, but just write down the word values, and then in the vicious cycle, what values would we put there? What word? The culture's values, and Israel oftentimes adopted the values of the Canaanites and others, 
the cultural values, or we're in a victorious cycle of people of faith when we adopt whose values? God's values. God's values. And I want to encourage you in that. So the book of Judges helps us to think about our values as well. This morning I want to conclude by asking you, as you think about your life and spiritual entropy, to go back to the beginning. How's the faith in your life? Do you have a vibrant, living faith? Are you in love with Jesus, who's in love with you, who's done so much for you? What's the passion in your life towards Jesus? Answer that question and you'll know a little about spiritual entropy. And if you're a parent, are you passing that on to your child? And then secondly, as we think about our life and think about the story uh, of Gideon, are we operating in our own power or recognizing that we can do what God wants us to do by God's power and trusting in God's power? And then these other two values I've given uh, to you as well that we uh, serve, we have our gifts, and we're living by God's values. D.A. Carson writes the following, and I've put this quote, and I want to end with it uh, for you. It's, It's rather sobering. People do not drift toward holiness. Apart from the grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, or delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we've been liberated. Let us pray. We want to give you just a moment of silence to... Respond to what God's saying to you. How's your life? Is there spiritual entropy? Are you slipping in some areas where you used to excel? The key here is not to beat yourself up, but to open and honestly listen to the voice of the Spirit, respond to God in faith, knowing that God loves you just like God loved the judges and the people of that day. God will forgive you and help you to be on a victorious path as you live out God's will in your life. So why not, why not pray to the Lord right now? Lord, thank you for loving us. Thank you for that most perfect expression of your love, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, we really struggle to imagine what it would be like to stand before you, and some of us feel like that would be a very dreadful moment. Others of us may see it as a glorious moment. Lord, what we do know is that we will stand before you, and that if we stand in Jesus Christ, we will stand perfect, forgiven, guaranteed eternal life. And I pray that you might help us to, in a fresh way, clean out the the dirty closets of our lives, clean off the shelves, realize we don't have time for everything. Life is serious, it's short, and help us to focus on those things you would have us focus on. I pray, especially if someone's caught in a vicious cycle of destruction, that today the entropy might be stopped, that the energy would be given by your Spirit, 
to start a new life in Jesus Christ, a life of victory, a life of hope, a life of peace. Thank you, Father, for making this possible in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.